Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, late autumn 2019. Forty years after it welcomed women through its doors, we're meeting Kian's past and present to talk about some of the most important issues facing women today. I was lucky enough to do a day's work shadowing when I was about 16 with a very senior police woman and I thought she was fantastic. So I went up to uni thinking maybe I would like to be a police officer. Tor Garnet is a police officer, a detective superintendent in the Met in London. She was at Keyes between 2004 and 2007 and studied natural sciences. Christina Ostakini is a flight lieutenant in the RAF. I was at Keyes between 2012 and 2015 and I studied history. Uh, no, I'm in a car and um, sort of just between RAF Lossiemouth and the beach. Although you can't quite see the beach from here. That is in the far north of Scotland. Hi. 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 Okay, I think we're all back on now. Tor Garnet is at home in London preparing for a night shift. They spoke on the phone about public service, their time in uniform and their time at Keys, starting with how the Freshers' Fair changed Christina's life dramatically. Um, I think I settled in really quickly. I was one of the unlucky people that fell into the trap of picking up a free T-shirt from the boat club in Freshers' Week and um, accidentally ended up rowing my entire time and by the end of it was doing 12 sessions a week with the university lightweight boat. Um, so like I kind of found my niche, Gosh. yeah, I sort of found my niche in sport which was something that I had never done at school. How about you? Did you have sort of clubs that you found straight away or did it take a bit of time? So I rode in my first term and then just before, I think, is it called Fairburns? The race yes, at the end of yeah, the first term. I um, found myself sitting in the in one of the baths in Harvey Court having a bath crying because of the blisters on my hands being like, I hate this. I am not ever doing this again after tomorrow. Um, so I did one unsuccessful term of rowing and then <laughs> gave that up. But exactly as you said, like so much sort of opportunity to just try new things and be like, ooh, maybe I'll be a rower or maybe I'll be like a knitter or somebody who likes folk music or somebody who debates. Suddenly, like all of these opportunities open up. And I found that actually quite a bit overwhelming, but also in the end, how I realised what I actually do like, because every term I'd end up doing the same sort of thing, mainly kind of college-based community stuff, mm. and would end each term being like, next term I'll get into the red wine drinking set who will talk about politics. Next term, that's I'm sure who I'm meant to be. And after nine terms, I was like, no, no. What I really enjoy talking about is who left the lid off the Marmite and why this shower water pressure isn't what it should be, etc. So you've come to terms with <laughs> who you are. Yeah, I kept having dreams of occasionally, you know, I'll just, I'll just sack in rowing and I can have blister-free hands and I won't have to wake up at 5am. You describe it to some people and they say, that sounds awful, but my alarm would go off just before five and... I'd sort of go down through the college courtyard, especially when I was a third year and I was living within the old building. You'd go down the spiral staircase and you'd go unlock your bike and it would be all sort of misty and frozen and you'd cycle down the cobbled streets and go to Ely and then you'd get in a boat with, like, the best friends you'll ever have. And I don't say that lightly, but there's something about 
waking up at 5am and all rowing together for each other that does mean you're going to make the best friends ever and it was a very very special experience and I think I wouldn't change all the blisters for the world the bit <laughs> bit cheesy I just really like rowing also were you involved in the JCR a lot I ended up becoming the first year rep in my first year for the JCR committee so then a couple of years later I then <laughs> went for the JCR president role and on a campaign of vote tour get more and my competitor was Michael Gilhooly don't be fooly vote Gilhooly so I was incredibly thrilled to win and then had a very happy year as the JCR president I just loved college life I'd loved the same at my secondary school and we introduced the wedding which was as a new fresher you obviously get college parents mm. and so the summer before that starts at the end of exams we'd have a wedding in which all the women would buy like brides dresses off charity shops and all the men would wear ridiculous suits and then uh we'd all have hall and the dean at the time was a really good egg and she would then do a fake marriage service for us um, Wait, so, sorry, there wasn't a college enjoyable. There wasn't a college wedding before your time because we still have college, or back in, it was only five, five, six years ago, but we definitely still had college weddings and we'd all find the, sort of, the cheapest white dress we could get from Primark and uh, go and sort of... <laughs> I invented it. Well, oh, that's my amazing. My year of the JCR invented it. It was very amusing that first year. People thought we were insane, but I think it's hilarious. Oh, now that's a tradition. It really does feel like, it feels like home. I think whenever I go back to visit Cambridge and as soon as you step in and you see Tree Court and then you go through to the Gate of Honour and it feels, it does feel like your home, doesn't it? And yeah. Yeah. So in terms of your your subject lecturers, what were they like and were there any ones that um, sort of particularly stood out to you or were really helpful for you? Okay, Um, so I was lucky to do natural sciences, which is a great course because you actually do quite a mix of things. So in the first year I did maths and physics and chemistry and uh, me and my friend Rich, who'd come from the Welsh Valleys, had supervisions in like physics with Dr. Butcher, who was right at the top of a long long tower in old courts and was fairly terrifying but also great and very quickly certainly for me it started to go well over my head as we got into like relativity and things so for my second year I ended up specializing in chemistry and material science and then my third year material science so um now I loved loved the study I mean it was hardcore I probably worked like nine to five Monday to certainly Monday to Friday probably Monday to Saturday sometimes mm. and always that thing of working quite hard the first two terms and then working really hard the third term as you revised for the exams um and I remember Professor Liang who I loved uh at Keys who would do all his supervision on very old school fax paper that would have like all the little dots on the side obviously from like you know 1902 and he was he was brilliant and so patient and yeah just fascinating and, and so satisfying to really, you know, I guess lots of people who come have been pretty good at their subject at their school. And then you get in the mix and you're by no means the like best of the best. You're just in this pool of 
people all of whom are smart and are able to work and are and are interested to learn so it was such a stimulating experience what about what about you yeah so i think one of the i suppose it can be an advantage in history is that all the supervisions are one-on-one so you have absolutely no point of reference unless you take people at their word when they tell you they're doing terribly or they're doing really well for example (laughs) so I had no point of reference um, in terms of where I was in the year how it was all going it was more just it's going fine and I'm for the most part I was really enjoying it and I think it's probably I mean you get it with all subjects in Cambridge but you do get a range of eccentric approaches to having supervisions so I definitely had um (laughs) I had one supervisor from a different college in my first year who sort of specialised in 18th century politics who didn't seem bound by this whole hour-long supervision time. So I remember at one point sort of catching a sneaky glance at my watch and realising it had been two and a half hours. And he would get really into it and he'd be pacing up and down the room telling you about court and country politics and the emergence of the Whigs and the Tories and everything. And sometimes you know, the sunlight would fall on you in just the right way and you'd be on a sofa <laughs> and it would be just a struggle, honestly, to stay awake. Um, but other times, like, it's such a it's such a privilege to have that and to know that this was probably the person who knew the most about what he was talking about. Um, and he thought it was worth his while to spend three hours of his day telling you about it. And I think that's honestly one of the most brilliant things about Cambridge um, and I, I still love history. Like I still, I still try to study it almost as an amateur. Um, I use a lot of the online journal articles, especially when it relates to things that are going on in the world at the moment. And if you really want to understand something, you know, looking at Russian revisionist history, for example, about World War Two. But I am just at my core a history nerd, so I'm not. I'm not too ashamed of that. <laughs> I think the most I manage now is like a Sudoku now and again. But yeah. <laughs> How did the RAF and, and that whole world come an option for you? What made you think that you'd love to do that? So it was a kind of chain of events. Firstly, I joined the Air Cadets when I was 14 years old, mainly because so I went to an all-girls school and I kind of wanted to do something a bit more interesting and maybe not all girls in my spare time and I mostly just joined the air cadets because they looked smart and a load of them played musical instruments in a marching band and I I played musical instruments at the time and thought oh that'll be cool and one thing led to another we did a lot of visits to RAF bases and the more I saw of it the more interesting it seemed to me so by the time I was 16 I was fairly certain that I wanted to join the RAF But I kind of carried on doing the youth groups and joined the University Air Squadron um, once I got to Keys. By the end of that, I put my formal application in in my third year and was pretty much set and on my way and into initial officer training less than three months after graduating. Wow. Tor, was there anything you did police-related, like while you were in sixth form or while you are in Keys? So, no, I didn't do... I didn't do anything police related. Oh, actually, I did some work, ex- some more work experience filing the traffic points of police officers who'd like driven the car the wrong way. Um, <laughs> one one of my university summers, but um, no, I didn't do a whole load of policing things. But I 
I just was clear that I wanted to do public service. And I think I think the other thing that when you go to Cambridge, you a bit, as you said, you get much more into the work than maybe you thought you might. And so I think everybody really does think a bit about, gosh, maybe I'll be an academic. Mm. But by the time I got to third year and and things are getting really hard in terms of the work, <laughs> I was also like, oh, I really want a job that you begin and you and you end and then you have a weekend or whatever. Mm. As it turned out, policing isn't really like that at all and it's on your mind quite a lot. But um, no, I ended up applying for Teach First, for the Met and for the NHS management scheme, actually. Okay. And it, yeah, it's so interesting to hear that from 14 you were involved in the Air Cadets because I think that is quite an informative moment of what you think would be fun and fascinating. And so having done that work experience when I was younger, I was pretty certain, oh my gosh, I'd be stabbed or it would all be a nightmare and I can't run and I'm scared of the dark and all kinds of things that make you inappropriate to be a police officer. But I talked to quite a lot of people and said, oh, maybe I'd do that. I then thought, right, come on, you've got to go for it. So, uh, so yeah, and I started in East London in Hackney going to 999 calls for 18 months, which was, which was in itself fascinating because you are such an immersion for your three years in Cambridge in one sort of side of your brain mm. and then arrived and did actually a very different side of my brain in a whole new world that I'd you know never really seen deprivation like it or understood the kind of chaos that is created around addiction or poverty or, or trauma. So it was very, very eye-opening for me. Did you find the same if you went so quickly, just three months from graduating into the RAF? Was it quite a like mind-blowing experience of, wow, this is very different to what I've been doing for the last three years? Or the discipline of rowing and the cadet work at uni meant it was quite a seamless transition? I mean, in some senses, it was... It was quite a natural transition. So I think there were a couple of funny moments where our instructors were doing the military thing where they say, oh, you're not students anymore. You can't lie in till 10 a.m. And I was thinking when I was a student, I was waking up at 5 a.m. every morning and working harder yeah. than this. And we were doing um, PT sessions every day on weekdays. And I was like, oh, only five training sessions a week. Are you, are you <laughs> sure you haven't missed some out? And there's also getting used to the fact that um, I suppose military instructors aren't actually like your Cambridge supervisors. So if you write them a 1000 word essay about how they've got varying standards when they inspect your rooms and how could we ever expect to learn if they're um, if they're changing their room inspection pass standards all the time, it doesn't end well. So um, so I think I've learned a few things there just about adapting to the non-Cambridge world. I think that's so interesting. I think at, at Keys and at Cambridge, it, no one gets defensive really over challenge. They mm. kind of love that. They love the sort of intellectual argument and a difference of opinion. And you're so encouraged to think for yourself and have a view that is different to other people's views. I agree. I think coming out in your early 20s and into the working world not not as many environments are as open or able to be challenged in that way. I think that's really I definitely true. remember having written in my report that I had a tendency to overthink. I was like, that's kind of it's kind of what I do. I, I don't know if it could be overthinking yeah. or if it's just uh you know, a regular yeah. Cambridge level of 
oh, I've thought this, therefore, therefore, therefore. Yeah, a criticism of being over-analytical. Mm. It's like, oh, that's what one's been rewarded for up until this point. Yeah. yeah. How did you find, what was the training like to become a police officer and the application process as well? Interesting. So the the application process was quite formulaic, understandably, because they are you know, recruiting at volume and, and the, there's got to be a process. And the training I found, I was very lucky actually and had some great trainers, but I, I found it quite slow and I found moments of it quite frustrating and interestingly since then um me and a mate in the met set up something called police now which is basically exactly like teach first Mm. is built for grads who have got lots of job opportunities and could go and do anything and might never have considered the police and if we say oh well you know we'll get back to you in 18 weeks and you say oh well actually i've just had an offer from goldman sachs and i've got to tell them by tuesday Mm. then you know it's a nightmare if we turn around and be like, oh, well, we can't go any faster than that. So we ended up with the support, in fact, of the great HR director in the Met, trying out a whole new way to recruit graduates into policing. And it doesn't pay you any different or it doesn't give you any privileges, but it puts you right on the very front line as a neighbourhood officer, which is one of the toughest roles in terms of trying to drive down crime and up people's confidence in you in, in a tight community. And we would go from sort of application to offer in six weeks. And we'd, you know, in learning from the Teach First models, start the summer a training academy in July. And rather than train in 18 weeks, which is what I did, we'd train in six weeks, very high intensity. And it's been a roaring success. It's now just recruiting its sixth cohort. And all kinds of phenomenal people have come into the Met. And now I think we're across... 25 or something forces um, right across Britain and that's something that you know I remember when I went to the careers day so Cambridge and there was like an officer from the local constabulary and I was like oh I'd quite like to apply to London and they were like well that's not us that's someone else and you were just like oh gosh this feels so complicated compared to like HSBC and Linklaters and everybody else handing out like free pens and being incredibly welcoming that that's the career you wanted to so I guess in some ways my application process and training was a real big impetus to say, why do lots of my peers not consider policing at all? Mm. And yet law or banking is a really obvious option for them. And how can we change that? Because maybe the same for you. I've found it the most fascinating, brilliant, rewarding profession ever. And I I so want more and more people to come. And even even if they only come for two years and then go off and do something else, I think it's such an eye-opening experience and opportunity to contribute and develop your ability to lead and, and things like that. So yeah, it was yeah, I, I love it. I'm so feel so lucky to have had a clear vocation for policing. And I think as well when you're applying to sort of public service jobs as well and it's that versus, oh, you could join this shiny accountancy firm and we could get you all these qualifications. It's it's the fulfilment and the interest that you get from the work itself that's drawing people in. And I think sometimes we just need to shout a bit louder about that. It's I think it's that desire to like give something back or make a difference, um, even if it is very small. Although in your case, sort of doing the whole please now thing sounds pretty amazing. No, but I, I think you I think you're absolutely right. I think we don't sell enough how fascinating and how challenging public service is. And I think it's great that 
you know, what I love about policing is it's such a diverse workforce. People have come from so many different backgrounds and walks of life and ages and stages. And what's lovely about that is it's a real leveller and you enter it with humility. You mm. know, the people I learnt from in those first two years were phenomenal. They weren't graduates necessarily. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But they were, they were just great communicators and great with people and great problem solvers. And it was so refreshing I suppose because Cambridge and Keys can be a bit of a bubble and I think a lot about you know to those too much has been given much is expected if you've had the good fortune to have a opportunity to study at Cambridge you need to go out in the world and absolutely make the difference and serve and and do the best you can for this world and I feel like policing and and the RAF must be the same is a place Mm -hmm. that you can do that every day you are able to serve and make the difference and it keeps you on your toes like there is definitely stuff about Cambridge that helps me in my current job but equally you know I've had to learn a huge amount it doesn't prepare you for all kinds of other aspects of life or or challenges that you kind of deal with professionally so what is your kind of day-to-day routine like what's the bits that you find most fascinating and what's the bits you find most challenging so a lot of what I do is operation support to aircrew flying squadrons so at the moment I'm working with the Poseidon P8 which is a maritime patrol aircraft So that's looking at the whole naval world of um, submarines and surface vessels. And it's something I knew literally nothing about at the start of my tour. So I could, I could with confidence tell you what a submarine was and what a, um, maybe what a frigate or a destroyer was. Every day I'm kind of learning new things and you're talking to people who are, who've been doing the job for sort of 30 odd years and that absolutely full of incredible knowledge and some of it you know these aren't people that have had necessarily formal scientific education but the level of learning that they're coming out with is well beyond I mean I only did sort of GCSE level science A level maths but it's it gets pretty high. So what does it what does a day-to-day look like are you kind of pouring over documents or are you like project managing changes or what is what does it look like that you do yeah so I'm pretty much pouring over lots of documents going through lots of different resources really to pull out the things that the crews need to know and digest them stick them into a presentable format normally a powerpoint and give a brief in sort of the best and most succinct way I can so I kind of think of my job as being a sort of information filter to enable people to do their jobs to the best of their abilities. And Cambridge, definitely studying history really helped because if you can get a sort of a 20 book reading list and distill it into a 2000 word essay in a week, then that's really the kind of skill you need to be able to pull information from all the different sources and put it into like a 20 minute PowerPoint. Uh, How interesting, yeah. yeah. How about you? So this week I'm working night duty and I'm the on-call superintendent for South London. So that means that between uh, 9pm and 7am, I'm the senior officer across uh, right the way from like Heathrow all the way over to Bromley. So southwest to southeast London. And uh, basically I will be at 
of one of the South London police stations all night and I will mainly take lots of phone calls from various investigators or duty officers who are running response teams that go to 999 calls about the stuff that is very high risk or that they need a superintendent's authority. So, for example, last night we had a number of missing people who were suicidal and so you are racing against time to try and find them and get them to safety before they harm themselves or you've got uh, you know a chase that's happened and somebody's discarded a lot of drugs and they've been an arrest and they're now trying to work that case through very quickly in order to try and charge that individual or you are signing off and scrutinizing a firearms warrant for a piece of intelligence that's come in to say that somebody's got a gun and how might we recover that gun and and arrest them and prosecute them successfully so real varied different jobs come into you Mm. and you're trying to do your best in the middle of the night to sort of support people and give good advice and make good decisions about what's a proportionate kind of course of action to manage manage the risk so that at the moment is my my week <laughs> so you know what's it like be having you know being a woman working your way up in the RAF um so i've actually found there's been it's it's not really like a huge deal particularly so for example on my officer training course we're about 20 to 25 percent women on the flip side that was considered a very female heavy course and at the point where you know one in five people is female that's that's (laughs) actually not particularly balanced but in terms of overall military perception like that's quite considered to be quite a lot of women I think it really does vary on your workplace like there's definitely sort of where I work at the moment just because of the area that it is and the people they've got there I will often stand up and I am the only woman in a room or while I was on an out of area last year and I was embedded in a coalition headquarters sometimes I kind of look around and I was not only the only woman in the room but I was also the youngest and the only junior officer and the only British person and so there's that was quite intimidating but I just kind of sat there and hope no one realized I didn't know what I was talking about but um, I haven't found there's been any like real issues in being taken credibly at all and part of me does wonder as well if there's a little bit of the the Cambridge magic that kind of works its way there because often if I'll chat to senior officers I'm briefing and they find out you know oh you went to Cambridge which college what do you study and it shouldn't be like that but sometimes there is a sense of oh she probably knows what she's talking about maybe we'll pay attention to her for a bit not that they wouldn't otherwise it's just that extra aura of yeah credibility really how about you yeah I think that's right I think that actually the woman label you know, the Cambridge label is a stronger label as the woman label, as is many, many other labels that everyone has, depending on their varied backgrounds. So I haven't found being a woman at all a thing, really. It is very diverse. There's a huge amount of women. My last job in counterterrorism, all my five bosses all above me were all female. And I think there've been one or two moments of like, oh, gosh, I'm 
seem to be in a minority here, but much rarer. And interestingly, in the Met, one in five sergeants is a woman, one in four inspectors and one in three superintendents. So in fact, as you get more senior, you end up spending more time with female peers. And, Mm. you know, quite a lot of meetings in the last three or four years have been been very much a minority of men in the meeting. So I think things are changing very, very quickly in policing and police now has 55% entry is women. So they are the, it's a female majority. I think, I think what I found more is sometimes a different response to the work that we do. So, you know, there's huge pressure, there's huge responsibility. There's a lot of trauma my response to that is tears, which is mm. a very female response, whereas the more male response is often anger. And, you know, my tears are often because I'm angry. But, you know, I think that's interesting and, and working in increasingly female cultures, doing what could be perceived to be a more male profession when dealing with crisis or aggression or things like that. Um and I find that fascinating about what does my own leadership behaviours look like in the face of trauma and and people who are managing trauma. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think just anecdotally, when I've been in situations where perhaps we've seen things that might impact us for whatever reason, I was lucky enough, my boss at the time was a female wing commander who was also a fast jet pilot, which is, again, not, Um, completely out of the ordinary but the sort of fast jet aircrew world is still very heavily male dominated and the way she kind of dealt with it was and it might not have been because she was a woman but perhaps she was able to come across as much more understanding and much more I suppose aware of all the responses you might have to it and just kind of be able to talk to people in a way that made you really know that the people in command were sort of had your backs i think that's totally right i think it's so lovely to be in more an increasingly female culture in this work in order to see other role models of how people people manage in tough situations Mm. i totally agree and so what do you want to do in the next you know where do you think things are going to end up in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Um, <laughs> so for myself personally, I would like to keep being in the RAF. I think because we change jobs sort of every two to three years, there's always something interesting going on and there's always somewhere else that you can find yourself. In terms of the broader RAF, I can only see it getting you know, more diverse and encouraging people from a much wider range of backgrounds in. And that, that'll include more women, as well as that, we've just had the first female RAF regiment gunner accepted and passed through training. And that was the single role in the RAF that wasn't open to women when all the others were. So that was a pretty groundbreaking landmark case. And I just, you know, it's not one of those things you don't expect every single woman to want to be a regiment gunner because not every man wants to be a regiment gunner. But at the same time, the fact that we've opened that up and it shouldn't become unusual for you know a teenage girl to turn around and say actually I want to do that and I can do that which is pretty encouraging because no one should ever feel like that's not an option you know in terms of the number of 
young boys that you talk to who are like, yeah, I want to I wanna fly fast jets, but there's not that many young girls at the moment that say that. And I can't see many reasons for that other than cultural gender stereotypes. And that's pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah, so where do you see yourself in the sort of 5, 10, 15 years? I think it's, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's a really hard question to kind of project forward 5, 10, 15 years. I think, though, that I feel as well that definitely the police is fascinating enough and large enough. And as you say, you know, moving every two or three years roles means that for the next 30 years, I'm absolutely, I feel very clear that it will be able to hold my enthusiasm and fascination and attention i think personally as you know people move into family life and all those kind of things i also feel like we are on the cusp of starting that revolution around flexible working and job sharing and and all those things which has been more challenging in shift work type organizations so i don't quite know what it will look like but i really hope to be wrestling with the problems that we wrestle with now and mm-hmm. finding some good solutions to them when it comes to how do you reduce crime and how do you cope with uh intergenerational trauma and you know how do you how do you help the public to feel safe so you know those are the questions that one's been answering for 12 years and i'm no doubt will continue to be the thing mm-hmm. for the next 30 that you know as crime changes will want to keep getting better and better and better at so I feel I did a business comment about uh, 18 months ago, which was interesting, but was really helpful to be like, actually, the grass is not greener at all. Mm. And we are an incredibly progressive, diverse profession. And and I feel very kind of proud to to be a police officer. I was going to say in, in an ideal world, if we push forward 15 years, neither of us would have much of a job to do but um i think yeah, unfortunately exactly. that's probably not the not the world we yeah. live in if there was no crime and no war exactly yeah. we'd be fine um <laughs> yes ideally we'll be unemployed in 15 years mm. but we'll see <laughs> i'll become a history teacher <laughs> christina ostacchini and tor garnet this is the last in the first season of for the love of learning podcast from keys college cambridge But before we go, one more memory from a speech made at a garden party held to mark 40 years of women at the college. This time, a story about change from Amanda Pinto, who was in the first cohort of women to attend Keys in 1979. Nothing really has changed, I think, in those 40 years, apart from communications. I thought I'd just share with you, with thanks to my friend Tanya, just a couple of ways that we used to communicate. We used to get yellow pieces of paper in our pigeonhole to tell us if we'd had a telephone call. (laughs) And these are two of Tanya's. 12th of June, 1983, for Miss T. Berman from Tim Bardwell. See you on Tuesday. I had a good sleep in Harvey... In Harvey Court Garden. (laughs) And just one other gem. 14th of March, 1983, to Miss T. Berman from R. (laughs) O'Connor. Please ring, I shan't give you the telephone number, if interested in something to your advantage. (laughs) A wonderful word of instruction, I think one might say, to Miss T. K. Berman on a typed note from Gomble and Keys College. 
Can you please call me on Monday, November the 8th at 6.10 p.m. to rehearse saying grace, or else come in earlier to arrange another time? This is rather important. The result without rehearsal can be terrible. <laughs> I think you'll agree nothing much has changed. <laughs> We're all here to celebrate, even though it does mean confessing that we must be older than 40. So thank Keys very, very much for a wonderful education and a wonderful party.